Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. Today's interview concerns improving patient care transitions, or more specifically, what can be done to improve care quality to reduce hospital admissions and readmissions. With me to discuss the recent quality improvement intervention, or a recent quality improvement intervention that reduced hospital admissions is Dr. Joanne Lin. Welcome, Joanne. Hi, glad to be here. Thank you. Before I introduce Dr. Lin, some background. As many Americans as many know, Americans are living longer with multiple chronic diseases, and as a result, in part, the delivery of health care services has become increasingly fragmented. For example, since nearly half of all Medicare beneficiaries suffer from three or more chronic diseases, Medicare beneficiaries over a two-year period see, on average, two primary care physicians and five specialists. This reality has tested the ability of the health care industry to provide particularly chronically ill patients with seamless continuum and continuity of care. This means largely providing competent care transitions in order to avoid both hospitalizations and rehospitalizations. Since nearly 20% of Medicare beneficiaries are rehospitalized within 30 days of discharge, the Affordable Care Act included a provision whereby hospitals are now financially penalized by Medicare for excessive hospital readmissions within 30 days of discharge. With that as background, let me introduce my guest. Dr. Joan Lin leads the Center on Elder Care and Advanced Illness at the Alterum Institute. Dr. Lin previously has served as a consultant to the administrator at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, as a faculty member of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which is Dr. Berwick's former organization, and as a clinical expert in improvement for the Care Transitions Project at the Colorado Foundation for Medical Care. She has also been a senior researcher at RAND and a professor of medicine and community health at Dartmouth Medical School and at the George Washington University. Dr. Lynn has published more than 250 professional articles, and her dozen books include The Handbook for Mortals, A Guide for the Public, The Common Sense Guide to Improving Palliative Care, An Instruction Manual for Clinicians and Managers Seeking to Improve Quality, and Sick to Death and Not Going to Take It Anymore, an action guide for policymakers and advocates. She's a member of the Institute of Medicine and the National Academy of Social Insurance, a fellow of the American Geriatric Society and the Hastings Center, and a master of American College of Physicians. She's earned, uh, beyond her master, two master's degrees, she earned her MD at Boston University. So with that as introduction, thank you, Joanne. Again, let's begin Dr. Lynn, though we are here to discuss the Journal of American Medical Association's just published research findings about work done by 14 quality improvement organizations to improve care transitions or reduce hospitalizations, let's begin by, can you describe more generally your work at the Alterum Institute or leading the Center on Elder Care and Advanced Illness? Sure. Be delighted to. Um, basically, we uh, have three pathways through the end of life. Um, People always think that one of them is sudden death, but that's now almost unheard of except in war and automobile accidents. Um, We mostly rescue people so they get the chance to live a while with their serious conditions. So some people will have a very serious illness and die rather abruptly. Over a period of just a month or two, they'll be terribly sick. Some people will have an illness that keeps them on the fence for a long time, and they periodically get terribly ill and go in and out of hospitals. But most of us will instead fall apart piece by piece in old age. So most of us will really have frailty 
And while, yes, we'll have some heart disease or we'll have some kidney disease or we'll have a stroke or uh, half of us will have dementia, um, what's, what's going on is that the reserves in all the body systems are diminishing. And we have many, many things that need patched up. And the center here is focused on that last course. How can we, as a country, support one another so that we can live well and meaningfully and comfortably in that period of our lives without breaking the bank? Um, how can you keep from bankrupting families and keep from just running up enormous bills for the community as a whole? So we're working on um, how communities could step forward. We're working on how um, people going through this phase really need a comprehensive care plan. We're working on the degree to which we need more social support and probably rather less medical support. So trying to put together the demonstration projects, the, um, the thinking, the categories that make it possible for us to see this part of life very differently. So that's our, our main focus here. The upside is we're living longer. The downside is with chronic disease. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay, let's go to this, uh, again, Journal of the American Medical Association article, article, which was just published today. I think you told me at 4 a.m. 4, 4 p.m. yesterday. Oh, 4 p.m. yesterday, excuse the me. The embargo lifted. The publication date's today. Uh, okay. So you co-authored this article, and it's titled Association Between Quality Improvement for Care Transitions in Communities and rehospitalizations among Medicare beneficiaries. So let's just begin with a general question. Can you summarize what these quality improvement organizations did and what were the results they and their healthcare partners achieved? First though, let me just ask if you could explain for us what is a what is a QIO? <laughs> quality improvement organizations are contractors to Medicare um, sent out essentially into the field. They're the foot soldiers in the field trying to make sure that Medicare providers have decent quality, um, addressing quality shortcomings, uh, both systematically when a whole field needs uh, help, um, targeted so that when there are particular providers that are falling down, and also responding to beneficiaries' complaints when it's affecting just that beneficiary. Mm -hmm. So these are um, kind of the, the people in the field, and there's one for every state and territory. So um, everybody has a QIO they can find through the internet. And so there are 53, 53 of Yeah. Okay, um, let's then go to the, the, the publication itself. So these 14 QIOs worked with community partners uh, in an attempt to reduce hospitalizations, rehospitalizations. So explain to me what the intervention was. Now, unlike most everything else that's been done in this field, we actually set out to improve care transitions so that especially hospital to wherever the next setting of care is. So from the hospital to the nursing home or to home care. Um, or to hospice. Yes, or to hospice, um, which mostly is a kind of home care. Okay. But the, uh, um, the error rate in that transition for Medicare patients was just outrageous. Um, probably the usual discharge had at least one serious error, and often many more than one. So the medications would be fouled up or the patient wouldn't understand how to take them or the information would not get to the next provider that would help guide what the next steps should be. Or the patient would come home to find that their apartment was, you know, the heat was turned off or the refrigerator uh, you know, had only rotten food. Mm -hmm. There's so many ways for that transition to foul up. And you're mostly now transitioning people who are quite ill. So it isn't people who are robust and have now recovered. It's people who've been through a, a major setback. They're now 
at least somewhat physiologically stable, but they're still very weak. They've often been in bed for a while. They often had poor nutrition, and their care system has fallen apart. So they had had somebody coming in twice a week to clean up. Well, that person's been out of work and has gone and gotten another job. Um, or their, um, their food delivery, their Meals on Wheels has been disrupted. So for a whole lot of reasons, that transition was working very badly. And what the QIOs did was to pull together the various providers in the community and begin to get them talking across the boundary. So if the hospitals couldn't feel like, well, their responsibility ended at the discharge order, and the home care agencies, the hospices, the doctors, the Meals on Wheels, and so forth, all were involved in saying, well, here's what we need in order to pick up smoothly. And developing that dialogue um, and the shared responsibility, rather than saying, you know, well, my responsibility ends at the door, saying instead, well, no, actually, I probably do have some responsibility to make sure that there are adequate supportive services, that they've been well planned, that they actually happen. Um, so the hospitals um, reached out into the time after hospitalization with phone calls or visits um, or a place to call back to, uh, making it a high priority to answer those questions when they hadn't been before. But likewise, the community support services got better. So there were ways to get people into those supports quicker or to notice that a person needed a particular kind of service. So we were mainly focused on care transitions and using rehospitalization and hospitalization as a metric to make sure we were going in the right direction. So it was an indicator metric and not really the goal. Right, it was the result. Yes, it have certainly was the result. Right, have people return to the hospital in fewer numbers and actually to have people avoid hospitalizations right. as well. Okay. The, the method uh, of this intervention is quality improvement. I know you've been a long time uh, a proponent of this method, the Plan, Do, Study, Act method. Uh, again, that was employed in this intervention. Can you explain that? And my understanding, if, if it's correct, is that this is the first time the Journal of the American Medical Association has published a QI project. Well, it's, um, so far as we know, it's the first time they've ever published uh, control charts and um, what are called Shuhart statistics explicitly. They certainly published some other quality improvement projects, but they were restructured as if they were research. So in a classic research project, you start with a clear intervention. You clean up the cohort that you're going to impose it on. Perhaps you randomly assign who gets the intervention, and then you see whether imposing that intervention improved things. But you've cleaned up the real world because you, you don't change anything as you go. You don't learn anything as you go. You wait to the end before you see uh, what the results. You see the results, and usually you've made the cohort as um, as similar to one another as you possibly can. If you're going out into 14 communities, there's no way to clean them up. You know, they they really are the community mm -hmm. you've got, mm -hmm. um, and they've got whatever problems they've got, and they've got whatever history they've got, and they've got whatever diseases they've got, and you have to really work with that real community. So that leads to a much more evolutionary kind of way of working with it. So you, you don't go into a community and say, well, we're going to find a thousand people and we're going to impose this intervention. Instead, you say, how can we help you? <laughs> you know, what do you see as the problems? Where is their leadership? Where is there someone willing to do something good? Mm -hmm. you know, how are we going to make this work? And so the 14 communities did different things. They did them in different orders. They did them with different uh, degrees of penetrance into their community. So some you know, targeted only the very high-risk patients or people with certain diagnoses. Some targeted a much broader array. Um, 
there were certain commonalities among it. So we did learn some of the kinds of things that tend to work. But that sort of approach of testing many things and in real time seeing if they're working. And they could be not working because of lack of skills of the people involved, lack of commitment so they didn't actually get uh, put in place, or you do it all right but nothing changes. <laughs> so there's all kinds of reasons for, going for things going wrong, but the team that the QIOs put together monitored how that was working. So that's the core of the plan, do, study, act cycle. You plan an intervention. You say, well, I think what will work here is settling on 12 things that must transfer with the patient or doing medication reconciliation um, right before discharge and again right after. And then you try it out and you see if that's really you know, hitting the problem well, if it's sustainable, if you have the skill uh, set to uh, escalate it to serve everybody or whether you really can only do it for the 20 people you started out on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so you learn a lot as you expect to learn a lot as you go. So the intervention keeps rolling up and changing. So suffice to say, you begin with X. If X isn't working, you go to Y mm -hmm. as an intervention. And in fact, the article states, and I'll just read briefly, that the agencies and other participants modified approaches as needed, learning from experience throughout the project. So yes. that's the difference. Yes, and one of the controversial areas is we even changed the target measure. So we started out with uh, the only measure that was available at the time, which was the uh, number of readmissions divided by the number of people discharged. And that had been applied to hospitals to hold them accountable for uh, their readmission rate, considering if you discharge 100 patients but you readmitted 20 of them within a month, um, that's your 20% rate. Mm -hmm. um, we were worried about that right from the start because uh, there was very good evidence that doing good things ended up affecting uh, the hospitalization that's two months out or six months out, and to a certain extent, even the expectation of hospitalization. So um, right from the start, we were developing an alternative um, target, and that turned out to be terribly important because it turned out much to many people's surprise that not only did good practices reduce rehospitalization and hospitalization, which I think would not have been terribly surprising, but that on average it did it at the same rate. Um, so that you know, we reduced the hospitalization rate at almost 6% and the rehospitalization rate at almost 6%. So a fraction didn't budge. Your know, fraction stayed the same. So what we did instead was to measure rehospitalization in the pool of Medicare beneficiaries living in the geographic area, which was also very important for focusing on the community. But it meant that we held hospitals and all the other providers accountable jointly for the degree to which sick people have to bounce back to the hospital, which is a very different way to frame the issue than thinking that it was primarily the hospital's accountability. Instead, you'd say, well, it's the issue for Harlingen, Texas, or for Northwest Denver. You know, how are you going to transition people and then support them in the community well enough that sick and fragile and disabled people don't have to bounce back to the hospital every time some little thing happens. You reduce the number of little things that happen, too. So the change of the measure from a hospital accountability measure to a population monitoring measure was terribly important. Um, we changed all the contracts. We changed the whole way the project worked. In a conventional research project, that would have been anathema. Right. But in a quality improvement project, you expect to change many things. 
as long as you've thought it through carefully and you aren't misleading anybody or doing it just you know, to bias the results. Mm-hmm. You know, here, I mean, we knew from the start that this might be a problematic measure. We put the things in place to build better measures, and within the first year, we were already changing the measure. Um, and the data, of course, doesn't change because we were measuring Medicare claims, so it wasn't as if there was any risk that we would bias the results by, um, by selecting different populations or something of the sort. And this was a three-year study, and when you say the reduction of 6%, that's, you had a comparison group. Yes. So that's how you measured the yeah. 6%. Because there were lots of other things. You know, in a complex system, there are always lots of things happening. So there were reasons to think that there might be some reductions overall in the whole population. So what we've measured against is against 50 comparison communities that were roughly similar in various ways to the 14. And what we're reporting is the degree to which we accelerated the rate of reduction, which is basically we doubled it mm-hmm. in a simplistic sort of way. So the usual community was reducing 2 or 3%, and we reduced uh, almost 6%. Let me ask two specific questions uh, further, and this is the standard question about generalizability. Mm-hmm. You know, QI projects, because the intervention is constantly evolving, the question is immediately begged, okay, you're successful in this instance. What's the predictive value relative to sort of doing this again? So can you address that issue? You wouldn't know because the world has changed. I mean, there are a number of insights from this project, the critical importance of community, the terrific importance of community support. And those are probably pretty enduring observations. But they aren't in a sense... Generalizability we think about as almost like a light switch. You know, it's on or it's off. But of course it's a scale. So if we're studying something like the sodium pump that's in everybody's cells, probably that's going to be pretty generalizable. Mm-hmm. There's little reason to think that somebody 20 years from now is going to have a different one than somebody today, mm-hmm. or that there's enormous variation in the community. So um, some things, once you establish how they work, they're, they're you know, really pretty pervasively generalizable. And some things are very contingent, you know, the happenstance of leadership in a particular community or the happenstance of a very uh, difficult uh, malpractice history or the happenstance of, um, of there being um, some really tough divides in the community in terms of who will talk to whom, mm-hmm. that those are not replicable <laughs> you know, or even particularly measurable. Um, and there are lots of them. You know, there are hundreds of them. So, um, so the generalizable things to take away from this are that it can work um, and that this sort of evolutionary change can be really authoritative. And this was a pretty authoritative study. We did it both by standard statistics and by quality improvement statistics, Mm -hmm. and it works either way. Um, But not every community succeeded. Some communities did not improve. Um, It would be very important if you were going about replicating it to understand much more about why some improved and when some didn't. Um, and when you go into a particular community, um, it's going to have its own complexities. And it's generalizable that you're going to have to understand them, but it's not generalizable which ones they're they going to be. Yes, <laughs> exactly. yes. Let me ask one other question then. Uh, leaving aside the slight Medicare financial pen- penalty now assessed against hospitals for comparatively high rates of readmissions, how does reducing hospitalizations reconcile with the hospital's larger goal of keeping its beds full? Well, I mean, over time, hospitals um, will prudently right-size themselves. 
Um, so if the community is really not uh, needing as many beds as they have, they'll find some other use for that space. It may become a sleep study center or a dialysis center or a long-term care center or a rehab. Um, you know, the, in the short run, hospitals need to keep their beds pretty full. In the long run, if they aren't keeping them very full, then they need to move them into other uses. Uh, right now, we're uh, experiencing something of a boom in hospital building. I think that's very, very dangerous. That uh, Some costs. Yeah. That once you've built that bed for a million dollars, um, you really have quite a drive to keep it uh, in operation. And that creates a supply-side pressure to be using the beds. Mm -hmm. And if instead people would be better served at home and by sending a doctor out to the home, um, as is done in hospice all the time, um, you, we are less likely to consider that if our first requirement is to pay off that debt for building the bed. So I think we really need to be um, being very much more thoughtful. Now, in the next 15 years, we still have an enormously growing elderly population. So even if we cut their hospitalization use by 10 or 20 percent, we're still going to fill more beds. But you don't want to have built a supply that's going to continue to drive high costs. So um, you know, people who think about these things and who plan for them should be being uh, very careful about these sunk costs. Okay, thank you. Let me just ask uh, the, the relative to where does this go from here. So what follow-up work in context of the study do you think would be appropriate or needs to be done? So, for example, this was 14 QIOs. We've noted there are 53 QIOs. <laughs> well, actually, uh, in this particular case, while it isn't, perhaps exactly a textbook example, um, it's already being built on. It took us a, quite a while to get through the review process, so um, I'm happy to report that the 53 QIOs are now working with more than 400 communities. Um, not quite as intensively as this, but helping them convene, helping them get uh, data together, um, help, you know, for the ones that really see a, a role for moving forward, providing uh, access to the experts, access to the tools. Um, so trying to make it easier for communities to move ahead. Um, there's also the community, um, the uh, community-based care transitions program, which is section 3026 CMS. of the uh, Affordable Care Act, um, that in which CMS pays for the first time community-based organizations. So the Area Agency on Aging or um, you know, a United Way agency kind of thing. Um, gets paid to help uh, in the transition. Um, and they have to work hand in glove with hospitals and with home care agencies and others. Um, but there are now um, around 80 such communities that are being specifically funded to allow the CBOs, the community-based organizations, to do much more of this work, which is a very interesting dynamic because you know, 10 years ago, most of the hospital leadership that we would talk to I didn't know the people in their area agency on aging. Were vaguely aware there was some aging network out there, but didn't take any particular interest in it. Um, and now they're very invested in it. They're 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 meeting their area agency on aging. They care that it's run well. They mm -hmm. they're worried about the wait list for Meals on Wheels or the unavailability of spoon feeding or or home health aids because. You know, those sorts of things mean people will bounce back into their hospitals and they get the penalties. Right. So, so um, 
the, these two programs, the QIO program and the Community-Based Care Transitions program, are really directly building on this. The Partnership for Patients um, has an aim of trying to reduce rehospitalizations by 20% nationwide. Um, there's the penalties that you mentioned that hospitals have. There's also now um, payment to physicians for um, uh, certain services for a person coming out of the hospital. So you know, it's one of these unusual circumstances where a bunch of things are converging to um, create a different set of patterns, uh, and they're all reinforcing one another. So it may work. Okay. I think we have one uh, time for one uh, last question. Um, since I noted in, in, in your bio you're the author of the handbook uh, volume, also the palliative care volume, uh, maybe I'd be remiss if I did not ask you a question about end-of-life care. Uh, since it's been nearly 30 years since the Medicare hospice benefit was created, still less than half of Medicare decedents access the benefit, and a third of those get less than 10 days of hospice care. So my question is, how do we deliver more or more timely and effective palliative care? Big question. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, supportive services under whatever label. The palliative care as a label has sort of been hijacked by medical specialists. Um, and hospice has been hijacked by that particular program. But all of us, as we get sicker and sicker and need more supportive services, need those services. So it's not, I, mean, I don't care that 50% of people get hospice care and 50% don't. I care that everybody gets reliable services through to the end. And we need to re-engineer how that's provided. We need a way to think about the production system for services in communities and to see that uh, people, as they come to needing more supportive services, are getting them. And probably somewhat less medical intervention. My mother fractured her back uh, back last spring, and um, she ended up with uh, three sets of scans and two sets of x-rays, three consultations with an orthopedist. I finally talked her out of the surgery he wanted to do. What she needed was $2,000 worth of one ER visit and a bunch of home care. But that wasn't readily available. You know, the ER doesn't know how to go hand in glove with the home care and make sure that somebody's monitoring how she responds to the side effects of pain medication and that she gets food in and, and is, you know, her muscles are kept up. She's 91 years old. Um, it, but we don't build a system that actually responds to her priorities. We build a system that pays for all those scans and would have paid for the surgery, but not the one that you know, would make sure that food got in and that she kept moving. Um, we need to re-engineer the care system for this frailty course. Hospice works pretty well for the sort of short course to death. And there's some other ways of going about the intermittent exacerbation course. But this frail course, half of us will be demented in that part of our lives, or co seriously, cognitively impaired. Um, we never really built a system that makes sense for that population. And it isn't just palliative care medicine. It's how are you going to live, how are you going to stay clean and fed and to the extent that you can relate to others and live what you would see as a meaningful and comfortable existence, let's make that possible. But that's a very different set of services than you know, fancy surgeries or, or mm -hmm. hot shot drugs. It's very much more human to human. and um, Low tech. Yeah, low tech. And you know, here we have um, a country in which uh, the only large group of workers that are not protected by fair labor laws are our direct care workers. Home health we, workers, yes. How can we do that? 
you know, don't don't have basic protections for overtime and that sort of thing, much less benefits. But three million workers who mostly do not have do not their fall own into the Fair Standards Labor Act. Yes, yeah, and, they, and they don't have their own retirement savings. So here they are working to help other people, and when it comes their turn, they don't have any savings or any um, insurance or anything else. So you know, we've got to start realizing that this phase of life is now predictable. If you don't die young, and remember I'm a geriatrician, so young is anything under maybe 80. Um, you know, if you don't die young, then you're going to die almost, almost always with a substantial period of serious disability that is progressive. Substantial and meaning long... Uh, months and months, months and months, often years. It's going to be very expensive. Um, you know, and the generation just behind the boomers doesn't have retirement security for themselves. So, well, in most of my practice, I can turn to the family and say, well, someone's going to have to leave work and take care of mother. I know that mostly people can do that without completely impoverishing themselves. Between the soft economy and people having lost the value in their houses and their investments, and their children not having good pensions of their own, the boomers are going to look around and see nobody to provide support. So we've got to start thinking in terms of how are we going to manage a few years on average for most people's end-of-life care and make that efficient enough that we can do it for one another without abandoning one another. You know, if we only give people a voucher and walk, for Medicare and walk away, we're ignoring the fact that the big issues are housing and feeding and staying clean. And almost no one has sufficient retirement savings or good enough long-term care insurance to protect themselves from those risks. You know, it's, it's something like the 1% that has that right, kind of right. wrapped up. All the rest of us are spending down to Medicaid, and it's just a question of how long we're in this state as to whether we get to Medicaid before we die. So it isn't just the duels, the people who are already spent down and have no assets. I mean, it's the Medicare what, poor, right? Yeah, the Medicare who also have Medicaid. But it's also the people who are spending down toward Medicaid and who still have some assets to spend. Can we help them spend their assets more prudently and also spend Medicare's assets more prudently and thereby manage to get through this period of time when we will double the number of people who are seriously disabled in all our communities? And think about having 20% of the population disabled probably about 12% of that, elderly and disabled, the rest, you know, younger people. But we, we, we never built a society around the expectation that people can't run out and grab the bus, you know, <laughs> or, or, or get their own groceries. And now we're going to have a very large population that is going to need that kind of help. And we really need to re-engineer the system. So that's sort of the main focus of the center here, is what would it take to do that? And again, we see a key piece as being everybody needs a real care plan, needs an honest care plan that has the patient's view in it and the capabilities of their community. And then there needs to be a way to manage the system locally so that um, the things that people most need are available and that the things that right now are being driven by supply and by habit pattern um, are less available. You know, why is it that we think that sending somebody with a fever at 98 with bad dementia to a hospital is, is in their interests. Surely it makes more sense to send the doctor out to them mm -hmm. and, 
and start whatever medications or treatments would make sense. But but we don't do that. <laughs> you know, we, we use the hospital as the fallback. So you know, most of us now live in urbanized or suburbanized uh, settings. We really could do geographic services um, at tremendous savings. Um, so you know, this is the direction we need to go. You know, the handbook for mortals kind of approach helps some, helps people feel empowered for themselves. Um, you know, the the um, quality improvement work for individual providers works. Um, you know, as this paper shows, the uh, overall social determinants, however, we haven't yet really tackled for this population. We keep kind of turning away. Until the last year, we had no movies that dealt with uh, with frailty. I mean, we had Iris. <laughs> That's about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, now there's a spate of movies that's beginning to touch on it. There's a couple of characters on television shows. Um, but we, we need to become familiar with this. Every family I deal with thinks that this is their own unique, um, uniquely bad luck. Mm-hmm. You know, how did this happen to mother? Instead, it's predictable. I mean, if you do not get cancer or you do not get heart disease or one of the more rare things stroke. that kills you young, right. well, even stroke, you'll live a long time now with stroke, with you know, hemiparesis or unable to swallow or mm-hmm. unable to take care of yourself. People still obviously do die of these diseases, but mostly of their third or fourth (laughs) assault, not the first time. Mm -hmm. When I was uh, in medical school in the early 70s, we buried a lot of young men. I mean, young young men in their 40s and 50s would die with their first heart attack. That is now really rare. Mm -hmm. Um, It's rare enough that I bet you don't know anybody who died in their 40s or 50s um, with their first heart attack. Instead, we rescue the person from their first heart attack and their second heart attack, and, and they get to live with a bad heart, <laughs> and, um, and which is a good thing. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a beats much, the alternative. Right? It beats the alternative, um, but it is costly, and it requires a different sort of delivery system. Care delivery, yes. And especially as you get to be frail and fragile, you know, so that uh, anything you do disrupts your well-being. Then, then we really need ways to keep people going in their environment as long as possible, make the transitions when they must make them into more institutional settings, much more agreeable. Um, and a piece of that is not to over-medicalize it. You know, this is um, now our dominant course toward death. Let's celebrate that we get those extra years without trying to fix every physiologic problem and mounting up huge bills. If my mother had had her back surgery, she would have run up a bill of twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 on something that should have been treated at 2000 And those sorts of examples are over and over and over again. And if we could just capitalize on that and move some of those services into the home care she needed and do it a thousand-fold in every community, uh, boy, would it make a difference. It's the only way we're going to see our, see our way through. Otherwise, we're going to go back to warehousing people. You know, when I first started working in nursing homes in 1978, there were whole states where... Most nursing home patients were tied down or sedated every day. We don't do that anymore. We have much better nursing homes. And and yet we could go back to that, just cut the income, you know, over time, you know, by a third. Mm -hmm. And that's all that we'll be able to do is just to warehouse people and try to keep them out of people's hair. But um, is that the future we want for ourselves and for our mothers? (laughs) It's mostly a women's issue. You know, men were prudent enough on the whole to marry slightly younger women and 
thereby have a built-in caregiver as they go into old age. Women, on the other hand, mostly face seven years alone right. and on average. And um, that means that most of the paid care ends up being given to women. Well, with that, Joanne, unfortunately, we're at our time boundary. So let me say thank you for My your pleasure. time. It's always Thanks a- for coming by. All right, thank you again.